Hello, and thank you for listening to Memoria's six-series podcast, The Loss of a Loved One. My name is Frank Milak, and I am the Community Engagement Director for Memoria. After the most difficult of years, we have created this series to help those who have been directly impacted by the loss of a close family member, a good friend, or a member of our own local community. The first episode will look at the impact and the effect going forward for those living with loss and discuss the help that is available to them. Episode 2 will address just what happens when somebody dies. In the third episode, we will look at the complexities of grieving and bereavement. The past year has had a profound effect on the funeral industry. In episode 4, we will look at the past, what the last year has changed for the industry, and discuss funerals going forward into the future. The last 20 years has seen significant changes in attitudes and approach to end-of-life services. In the fifth episode, we will look at the role of officiants, celebrants, religion in funerals, cultural needs, humanist options, and whilst we are seeing an increase in family and conducted funerals. Our final episode in this mini-series will be about hope. I'm truly honoured that those who have agreed to take part in this production take in what has always been a very difficult subject onto a new and modern platform. In this opening episode, I am joined by Howard Hodgson, the CEO of Memoria, Anne Chalmers, the CEO of Child Bereavement UK, and Tim McCarthy, the CEO of Aurora Academies Trust. Here is Howard Hodgson. My name's Howard Hodgson. I'm the CEO and founder of Memoria, and I'm a fourth-generation funeral director, and I've spent something over 50 years in the care of the bereaved. Bereavement is a subject we don't talk very much about as a nation, and in fact, as a result, that often leads to a lot of misunderstanding and extra pain at the time of bereavement. So, This series is designed to help people understand both practically in terms of what might happen when a bereavement happens in your family, in terms of the diversity of choice that you might have regarding funeral arrangements, what you have to do, and how you can cope with bereavement. Because bereavement is not only one of the most unhappy and hard experiences that will be asked to face in life, But because we're not really prepared for it, it also, in fact, takes us by surprise. It's a bit like a a wave that comes over you if you're standing facing the shore and the wave comes over you at the back of you and takes you unawares. And although you felt all right one minute, the next minute you actually feel very unhappy and very distressed. And those feelings go from perhaps every few minutes to every few hours to every few days to every few months to once a year before eventually disappearing and leaving you with fond memories of someone that's very important. However, it's man's duty to mankind to treat others as they would be treated themselves. As it says in the Bible, do unto others as you would have done unto you. And in fact, whether you're a funeral director or whether you're a person involved in bereavement, all of these people are dedicated to try and ease that pain. And that's what this is about, really, to actually help people know how they feel, because no two bereavements are ever the same, uh, because they're different circumstances. I've lost a child, I've lost 
a parent when I was young and I've lost uh, a mother who was 94. They're all very different experiences. Bereavement is always different, but ultimately it's still extremely painful. And ultimately we're here, hopefully with this series, to make people aware of where they can go and what they can do to seek help because bereavement can be also a very lonely experience. Thank you, Harold. Thank you very much. I mentioned earlier today we are also joined by Anne from Child Bereavement and Tim from the Aurora Academies Trust. There have been over 100,000 additional deaths during this pandemic and these have had a very profound effect on millions of people, including the younger generation. Having already been kept from their friends and restricted in their day-to-day lives, their education has been hugely impacted and of course their futures have been affected as well. So, losing a close family member as well, or a friend and neighbour, will create additional stresses and anxieties, which they will carry as an additional burden when during the coming months they attempt to catch up with their lives, their education, their relationships, and start again preparing for their futures. And thank you so much for agreeing to join us today. Clearly the past year has had a very serious impact on young people's lives. Can I ask you to explain to us today your thoughts on how this has altered things for so many young people, the effect it has had on Child Bereavement UK, and your thoughts on how we can help young people with the challenges they now face? Thank you, Frank. Yes, I mean, it's been an extraordinary year without doubt. And bereavement in childhood, which is something we're very familiar with at at Child Bereavement UK, supporting families as we do, either when a child dies or when children and young people are bereaved of someone important in their lives. Um, But of course, with the the advent of the pandemic in the last year, it's meant, you know, new challenges, new fears, new ways of, of working and living for all of us. So people who are grieving, regardless of whether the death have been as a result of COVID or by other causes have been grieving under very, very different circumstances. And I think we're very aware for children and young people in the same way as we are for adults, that, you know, there there are different factors. Howard's already alluded to the fact of, you know, grief being very individual and no two people being the same. And we're aware that there are different factors that, you know, influence our experience of grief, things like the circumstances surrounding the death, which obviously have been very different in the past year, but also the environment in which, you know, children and young people are having to manage that grief going forward and the support network and level of support that's available to them. And COVID has had a a huge impact on on all of these in in the last year. Um, And I think, you know, what we see is that, you know, that's leading to perhaps different complexities around around their grief um, that will have to be addressed in the time to come. I mean, we know um, from the children and young people that we work with at Child Bereavement UK that, you know, where they are developmentally, where they are in their understanding, and that's only ever broadly related to age, but that completely determines um, what they understand about death, how they react to bereavement, how they behave and, and what they need. But of course, they're not only bereaved at the point that the death happens, they continue to be bereaved throughout childhood and they will revisit their grief Um, as they approach that experience with a different understanding, um, as they begin to grasp that actually death is permanent, which obviously very little children don't understand, but also then that it's irreversible and universal and that it can happen to anyone and also to them. So it was very telling, I think, that, um, you know, a year ago when we first went into lockdown, 
the huge amount of calls that we had to our national helpline um, from parents who were really worried about children who were expressing real fears that perhaps where there'd been a bereavement in the family in the past, you know, perhaps dad had died a couple of years ago and they'd been supported in that experience, but now they were terrified that, you know, someone else important in their life was going to die as a, as a result of, of the pandemic. Um, you know, grandparents who might have been, you know, the people who cared for them after school every day, or indeed their surviving parents. So we did a lot of work in the beginning, um, just helping to support parents to support their children in allaying those fears and producing information and short guidance films, just about helping children with events in life that are frightening and, and scary for them, um, and highlighting the kind of things that, that children would need. We've also seen from families, you know, we work also with families in, in situations pre-bereavement, so when it's known that a death is going to happen. And often the work with those families is about um, helping them communicate as a family in advance of, of the death, think about how, as a family, they're going to manage the experience of, of that parent or, or sibling um, who, dying, who, who they know is, is going to die. And of course, again, the pandemic has, has potentially changed that, the way that perhaps things have happened haven't been the way that, that families have planned. And then obviously for people who have been bereaved um, through COVID, you know, often being in that situation of, of seeing someone going into an ambulance and then never seeing them again, not being able to visit them in hospital. Um, and then obviously for families not perhaps being able to have the kind of funeral that they would have had before or being able to attend those funerals. And again, we've you know done lots of work helping families think about different things that, that they could do to help with that. But I have to say a lot of families also, and you know, funeral directors have played a huge part in, in supporting families through this. We've also had families who've talked to us about after the funeral, how yes, it was very different to what they envisaged, but actually it was also very special, just in a very different sort of way. So maybe the intimacy of a a very small funeral that you know they really thought about um, how to make that as special as they could um, was in, was important to them. And then I think we've been very conscious that for children and young people who are grieving, regardless of the cause of death during this time, they're doing that without a lot of the normal support network and the normal sort of healthy distractions that they might have sort of balance things around bereavement um, you know things like school which has you know a hugely important part to play in continuity and normality and stability um, for children the importance of routine for them you know that's all been very different parents working at home um, you know perhaps parents being furloughed from work and you know all of those different considerations and then within the home for some families I mean again it's very different for some families they've really valued having that time together that ordinarily they wouldn't have had to grieve together because they would have been out at work or out at school. But for others, all being under that same roof and perhaps in the house where the death occurred um, has just increased family tension. So we've seen lots of, of very, very different experiences. And Howard mentioned the loneliness of grief there. And of course, isolation is a, a word we've you know, heard so much um, during the, the pandemic and there's been a lot of enforced isolation. But, you know, there's no doubt, I think it's certainly increased isolation for children, young people and adults who are, who are grieving, just not having access in the same way to your wider family. 
your friends, you know, people can't just come around and have that cup of coffee and cry with you and give you a hug in the same way as they would have done. Um, you know, we're conducting these sorts of conversations over Zoom and, you know, in different ways now. So I think that there have been so many ways in which um, you know, the way that people would have naturally grieved have, have perhaps been compromised during this last year. Thank you, Anne. That was very, very insightful. I don't know whether any of us here today have got any questions that we would like to ask Anne. No, I just think it was actually very well put. And the fact is that this year has been quite different. But in a way, there have been some positives out of the, this year. In fact, some some of those, I mean, we always sort of look at the pandemic as if it was all tragedy. And of course, people dying before their time, dying of an illness that maybe they could have been cured of if it hadn't been for the pandemic. There's a lot of tragedy. But there's also, in fact, a, a, some things that were slightly easier. Bereavement has become a much more shared experience in the pandemic. Bereavement, because it's been experienced by so many more people, and often children, it isn't you're not just going to school on your own and isolated as a bereaved child. There have been quite a lot of other people going to school who've also had bereavements in this year. And there's nobody like somebody else who is bereaved that actually understands the bereaved. The, the, the fact is that... Um, uh, and as a result, you, they get to talk to. Bereavement is often very lonely. Uh, when I lost my son, everyone was very, very kind and considerate and wanted to be around us until the funeral had happened. When the funeral had gone, though, so did the people. And we didn't get invited to dinner parties and all sorts of things. So we don't want to really have them just in case, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be very sad and upset. And, and so you get actually cut off if you're not careful. And that for elderly people is, is much worse um, because they really are on their own. Uh, and very often there's that advert for uh, Age UK on television where he says, I'm not doing so well just now. And in fact, he isn't because he's on his own and nobody's coming to see him. So it, it, this year uh, it has been a bit better. And I think Anne made one fantastic point insofar as that uh, because we are so British stiff upper lip and life must goes on, everybody has to go back to school, go back to work, etc. And the pandemic, when there's been lockdowns, has allowed people to be at home together and have an extended period of time at home together. And that's been, I think, uh, a positive because it means that there's nobody like you or your family to support you because when, when you have a bereavement, uh, as I said, you, you're actually quite okay one minute. You feel that it's okay and you're going to get better and then suddenly, unexpectedly, like a wave crashing over you, bang, you, you just feel how you, you won't be able to go on. And, um, and then it goes. And, and the, the grieving process just means that those waves crashing over you happen less frequently over a period of time. And I think it is also quite different that we, we do try and understand that um, when I lost my son, he was three and a half, uh, and the situation, I knew I was young enough. I'd got a son, and I was young enough to have more children. I ended up having four more children. So I was in a way very fortunate position because I wasn't in my 50s or 60s. I hadn't got one son who just blew his brains out on a motorbike and my whole life was going to become a mausolea to the, the existence of that child. Uh, but at the same time, 
it, it was far too serious to cry. It was too bad to cry. When my father died, when I was in my early 30s, I cried a lot because I really loved him and I wished I'd told him a lot more. And then when my mother died in 94, I cried. But I cried and then the next day I understood that she'd had a very good life and we were going to have a fantastic celebration of life service for her because she was a great woman. And this, there are three entirely different emotions. And it's so important that people like Anna are around to actually understand the difference between all that. And, and most of the, when I was a young man as a funeral director, you'd, you'd see a woman lose a husband and you know she'd be all right because actually she'd been doing what she'd always been doing forever. That was looking after the home because in those days women didn't go out to work very much and the situation she'd be looking after the home. And he'd been the breadwinner, but then he'd retired and become a bit of a puppy dog really. He might have been a brutal so-and-so down the pub every night when he was a younger man. But now as a retired man, he was at home. He'd become a bit of a puppy dog. And in fact, she could manage without him because she knew how to do the cooking, the cleaning, do the toasting. But if she died first, I'd always know we're going to be back here in six weeks because he'd give up. He'd die. And he'd be bullied around uh, on, on the funeral by lots of daughters or daughters. Come on, come on, Dad, pull yourself together. Mum wouldn't want this. Mum wouldn't want you showing any emotion. And, you know, a lot of that's gone. And that's good it's gone. Because, you know, I, I'm not an anti-British Empire person at all. I think the British Empire had lots of very, very good points. But that stiff upper lip situation was quite terrible. And when my wife and I lost uh, uh, Charles, my son, she cried and cried. She was a French Roman Catholic, and she got it out of her system. Everyone said, hasn't Howard been brilliant? I wasn't actually brilliant at all. I was stiff up a lip and the show was going on. But actually at night I was staring at the wall. I, I was going mad. And then what happened was a, 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 an organist at the crematorium came to me and said, you always said uh, that in fact writing music was easy. And I said, well, I can't do the lyrics. He said, well, listen, I've written this music. Now you do the lyrics. And we wrote two albums together and I got better. And he saved my life. And, and uh, it's just understanding all those things, the how you can help people. You can't take away the pain of bereavement, but you can just make it a little better. And it's people, people like Anne do fantastic jobs because they understand what they're doing. Tim, hi, and again, thank you also for agreeing to join us today. Perhaps for the benefit of those listening, you might want to explain your role at Aurora Academies Trust. Yeah, certainly, Frank. Um, I'm the CEO of Aurora Academies Trust. We're a group of seven schools down on the southeast. Um, most of the schools are around the coastal strip, um, although we've got a couple of schools around uh, in and around Gatwick Airport. We have over 3,000 children in our schools from ages two right up to 16. Um, and we also employ just over 400 staff. So it's a big responsibility, um, those youngsters. Um, just before I do, Frank, I would, I would want to say to Anne that um, I will be talking about, um, obviously, um, how we're dealing with bereavement as part of the, the whole thing. But Anne, Anne's organisation is one of the um, the organisations that we signpost our parents to. In fact, um, the, the contact details, etc., on our on our website. And I think that they do do a fantastic job. So thank you very much for your input, Anne. Tim, you and I have spoken previously about the effect this has had on young students and how your staff are having to directly help those affected. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about this and perhaps expand on your thoughts on how we can learn from the past year and tell us a little bit about how you think the subject of deaf and bereavement could be better placed within general education? Yeah, certainly, Frank. Just to put it into context, bereavement, be that a child or be that a parent or be that a member of staff, has always been around. Um, Very sadly, when I first started teaching right in the early 80s, uh, in my first three weeks of teaching, there was a terrible house fire in which a whole family were um, were killed and all of the children, three of the children, attended the school that I was at and two of them I actually taught. Um, so it has always been there. I think the past 12 months have been particularly acute because of the unique circumstances of um, most children not being in school. There's a, there's a, a common myth that schools have been closed throughout the last 12 months. That's not true. Um, schools have actually been open for the, the most vulnerable um, and for the children of key workers right the way through since last March. Um, and I think the important difference now is that where grief has happened, where, where deaths have happened, quite often it has been when children are at home and they've not been, as Anne mentioned earlier, they've not had the, the comfort blanket of being in school. Um, it, we, we've looked at the stats across our schools and in the past 12 months, um, on average, um, four children in each school um, have experienced death of a of a close relative um, whilst they've been there, and uh, sorry, eight children and four four members of staff um, of 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 uh, experienced death. So it, it it is prevalent, and and it has been um, a really difficult time, and a difficult time to know how to support people. And and what we what, the way we look at it, things, Frank, is that. Um, there's the immediate support. There's the signposting to organisations like Child Bereavement and others, um, and and there's that support for those children. I have a, a bit of a concern that, that there's, I won't describe it as a ticking time bomb, but because um, children and staff have not had the ability to achieve closure in the normal way because funerals I attended a funeral of a member of staff who uh, passed away with where COVID was um, listed as one of the causes Um, and it was it was it was a little strange for a funeral because um, only 30 people allowed to be there Um, I was asked to do a reading in which I had to um, keep my mask on um, and all of that was strange. There was no opportunity to socialise or to mix it either before or afterwards. And I just think that there's a longer term view, which is why, as you know, I agreed to come on here, because I think there's a longer term view that schools in general um, can play a huge part in in terms of supporting um, young people and adults um, through bereavement. Thank, thank you, Tim. Thank you so much. In the coming months, I think we'll all agree that there's going to be a significant number of people of all ages from all cultures and communities that are going to need significant support. It could be said that many people are feeling rather lost because of the absence of these events ever being uh, discussed either at home, at school or indeed, indeed generally across communities. What do you think we can do to help people and society to be perhaps better prepared to deal with the difficulties that life presents? Tim, I'll ask you first, and then perhaps you would like to respond after Tim. I think the experience that I described when I was a young teacher, Frank, and I was young once, takes me back to uh, something that as I became a head, because I've been the head of uh, two different schools, a local authority school, and I was once the principal of an academy with hundreds and, you know, indeed the second one with thousands of children in them. I saw more and more issues around the mental health and well-being of young people. 
and then of and of staff as well um, and that's become more prevalent bereavement is a particular thing that we have to deal with and you deal with it as as it arrives and you signpost people to the right support to experts at um, who work for um, um, Anne's organisation, etc. But I think it is part of a, um, a a wider thing to try and try and look after the mental health and well-being. So I, I believe that schools need to be proactive about this and and proactive about bereavement. Um, and as both Howard and Anne have mentioned this morning, it will happen to everybody um, at some stage in their lives, and how they deal with it could be individual it could be immediate it could be delayed but there's a there's a need for schools to to look at bereavement but there's a there's a need for schools to look at and be proactive about the whole gamut of of um, mental health and well-being so when I took on this role I was very keen to try and support that and actually to get adults into schools who were trained in order to deliver uh, on those things so we have a whole trust mental health and well-being lead practitioner and what she does is she trains people in schools um, to um, do mental health first aiding. Um, we, we're involved in a really, really good project with, in our early years, from nurseries upwards, um, caught with a, a, an organisation called Action Your Potential, um, looking at 10 rocks of well-being. Now, part of that, of course, is bereavement. Um, and we're looking very, very much in how we can um, train our people um, not to become full-time bereavement counsellors because we, to, quite frankly, our, our job is to educate, um, but to be aware of what to, uh, what to look for, how to signpost, etc., and to work very closely with organisations such as, such as ANS so that we can work in partnership with them to provide the support for young people and for adults in, in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I agree with, with so much of what, what Tim's saying. And I think particularly for children and young people, school has such an important part to play because certainly in, in more normal times, you know, it's where children spend the vast majority of their waking hours and they have access to those familiar, trusted adults um, around them and the routine and stability that, that school brings. And I, I think, you know, we're, we're talking there about the positives, perhaps, that come out of the pandemic. And I think there certainly are many. And one of the my hopes is that it does result in us having a more sort of bereavement aware culture um, out of this, because, you know, as, as Howard was saying, you know, the, the British stiff upper lip and the way that historically we've perhaps dealt with grief isn't isn't perhaps the most helpful way. Um, I mean, we need our stiff upper lip when we're grieving to enable us to get out and push our trolley around the supermarket and feed the family or whatever. There's time, so we need that. But I think when our stiff upper lip becomes paralysed in that position, it's it's to our detriment. And so I think, you know, we need to keep communicating. I think that's, you know, absolutely key, and particularly with children and young people. And also to sort of support the people who are in the position of, of doing that. Um, supportive work with them on a day-to-day -day basis like like teachers and I think the other thing for all of us that is really important is to, to build our resilience and we often talk about children as being resilient just as if it's just a given they're kids therefore they are resilient but they can only be resilient if the conditions are right and I think you know supporting them to find ways to manage challenges in their lives a lot of them have managed huge challenges during the course of, of this last year but those are things that that can sort of feed the positives in that the things that they've managed to do that they've coped with can feed their self-esteem and I think that's you know something that hopefully can also come out of this that we're more aware of that um, and providing you know that that sort of support.
It's very interesting that um, actually both of those statements, one made earlier by Anne and one made later on by Tim, are absolutely true. And it's because we're just not the same people. Some people come from a very close family background where actually having suffered a bereavement, there is nowhere better to be than in that environment. But on other hand, there are other people who don't have a very good, and I think teachers have and live up very much to that moral value of, of assuming that people don't necessarily have a very good home environment. And it's those children that don't have a good home environment to which school is their long stop and total support. And in fact, if they don't get that support from school, they're probably not going to get it anywhere else. And I think that's why uh, people like Tim and all of his profession actually are doing a very good job. You know, you can't categorize bereavement. It is always an individual experience. You do have the same emotions and to different degrees, and you do need, as Anne says, some stiff upper lips sometimes, and other times you need to let it come out. But it's just the knowledge of it that is... Um, we are so bad in this country. Let me just give you a very common example of how bad we are about this. Father says, do you know what? I want uh, my children to inherit everything. I don't want any money wasted on my funeral. You can put me in an orange box as far as I'm concerned. I've bought this pre-arrangement plan. And it's the cheapest one I can find. It's called a direct cremation, and it's absolutely the right thing for me. And in fact, uh, he really has believed that he's done the right thing by his family. And then he, he actually um, doesn't talk to anybody about it, and he passes away. And the family go, what? We can't go. We can't attend. We didn't want to die cremation. How much will this cost? So exactly what he didn't want to happen. How much will this cost now for us to go and actually attend a proper funeral? And the city, or, or, or even go to the crematorium, not necessarily a traditional Victorian funeral, but uh, a celebration of life funeral. We want to go. We want to be there. How much will this cost? So they're actually doing exactly what he didn't want. And the only reason, his intentions were brilliant, but he actually never talked to them. Howard, considering both Anne and Tim's comments, how do you feel the funeral industry can better represent itself to society? Well, I think the funeral industry has really got to, I mean, let's just say that the funeral industry has had uh, a lot of bad publicity and at times quite unfair publicity um, uh, over the last two and a half, three years because of the CMA investigation into funeral directing and uh, other areas of um, the funeral industry. So I think that uh, as a result, every time you've picked up a newspaper and read about something in general uh, about funeral directing, you, it's often been quite negative. Whereas in fact, the f funeral directing profession in the UK has been very much uh, unsung heroes in this pandemic because they and workers in crematoria and cemeteries have been right up at the front end of in fact... Uh, the, the pandemic and, and actually essential service that has been taking risks of life. So when people were getting up and clapping uh, as they were last year in the spring uh, on, I think it was a Thursday evening, and then people were saying, well, this isn't just for the NHS, it's for postal workers. Postal workers? I beg your pardon. Now, funeral directors and their staff, and in fact, uh, crematoria staff, cemetery staff, etc., have actually been vastly more in the face of, the, of danger than funeral directors, than uh, postmen. So uh, I think they have been very good uh, in that regard. But 
they have to now understand that the industry is changing and it's changing at a very fast pace because of social media. It's changing insofar that people want diversity, they want choice, they want to be able to decide exactly what they want. The fashion of death follows the fashion of life and you have to go back into the 80s when one prime minister gave, just changed the fashion of life in this country forever by giving everybody middle-class aspiration by selling their, uh, um, the denationalizing industries, selling shares, um, giving, selling people their council houses for very cheap rates. So as a result, everybody became, had middle-class aspiration, and that meant choice. So the idea that people were going to turn up continually thereafter to a 10-minute uh, cremation service time with a rotor minister who never mentioned your mother's name and probably got her sex wrong, and with, came out after 10 minutes to face five more funeral cortiches in the, in the driveway of the crematorium. These days have gone, and quite rightly so. But also, over that period of time, the actual Victorian funeral changed very little. little. But suddenly, since the millennium, religion has taken a huge dive. And religion used to control all funeral services. And now it doesn't. And that actually means that the public... The, the bereaved have got control of those those services. They want to have eulogies and they want to have photographs and they want to have special music and there's almost a bereavement top 10. And as the years go on, it, it changes. It was Elvis. Originally it was Frank Sinatra, then it was Elvis. Now it's the Beatles. Soon it'll be Duran Duran and so on. And those people, those are things that are important. They want a celebration of life that talks. These are the photographs of my mother. This is the music she liked. This is somebody talking about my father. What a great man he was. And that, that's because religion has gone. And they want an hour to do that, not 10 minutes. And when they, they actually, before all of this happened, they had to express themselves with having, how many limousines did you have? What sort of a coffin did you have? Uh, how much did you spend on the flowers? You don't need to do that anymore. So if you want to have a hearse and limousines, that's fine. If you want to have lots of flowers, that's fine. But if you don't, you shouldn't have to go to that expense. The average direct cremation is about £1,000. The average celebration of life service is about £2,000. The average Victorian traditional funeral is about £4,250. So actually, a lot of people think that they must actually uh, spend this money on having a traditional Victorian funeral when there is absolutely no appropriate or legal requirement to do so. And that means that actually you can make the right choice, the appropriate choice for you. You can either have a direct cremation and have the service some other time another day. You can have a celebration of life service and be there, but actually the coffin will be waiting for you on the catafalque when you get there. You can have, if you want, a traditional Victorian funeral, but you don't have to have any one of those, and that's the important thing, diversity of choice. And I think that is a problem for some funeral directors because I think they're actually... And I can understand why it's a problem for them, because in fact their business is set up to provide Victorian funerals. So it's like turkeys voting for Christmas to actually tell people about the fact, well, you could have a direct cremation or you could have a celebration of life service. And I think that's where they have to. Funeral directors are good people, but they have to actually not try and retard people's choices by actually explaining, because most people don't know those choices are there. 
Thank you, Howard. Thank you so much. Today's first episode, The Loss of a Loved One, is, I feel, the start of better communicating what has always been and will continue to be a very sensitive topic. But by creating this type of forum and opportunity to air the subjects, it can only help. Thank you so much, Anne and Tim, for your time today. I know you're both incredibly busy right now. And I do look forward to your continued relationship between Child Bereavement UK and Memoria. And Tim, I wish you and your teams and colleagues, uh, as you strive to get the Academy's teaching again, all the very best. My best wishes to you and your teams. In episode two, we will discuss what happens when a loved one dies, the processes and the choices. These podcasts are free to listen to via Amazon, YouTube and Spotify. For further information, please contact me directly via LinkedIn or at memoria.org.uk and I will happily provide you with the links to access the series. Thank you again for listening.